and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast. Uh, I'm Dave Baxter, and today I'm joined by Asset Allocator's own David Thorpe and our guest, James Penny. James is the Chief Investment Officer at TAM Asset Management. So, James, thanks uh, very much for, for joining us. Um, we're now, I suppose, at that one of those kind of psychological um, milestones. You know, we've passed the mid-year, mid-year point, and of course, things don't suddenly turn around at that point, and, you know, we can't simply forget what has been such a difficult first half of the year for uh, for portfolios. But I suppose it'd be interesting to kind of kick off, bearing in mind by that point, kind of just whether you're, you know, what your kind of broad expectations might be. You know, I'm not asking you to have a crystal ball, but kind of what what might you be now kind of looking out for now that we've moved through that really, uh, I suppose, kind of torrid first half of the year for markets? Thanks for having me on. David, um, I wish I had a crystal ball. It would be incredibly <laughs> helpful. Um, looking at where I think we're going in the next uh, six months, end of the year, H2, Q3, Q4, um, I don't see any reason why volatility, which has been the kind of buzzword for the year, is going to subside. Um, you're starting to see people in different camps. You know, you're starting to see some people... Some people saying that the market's going to stabilise. This is a good point to find the floor. You know, this is a this is a good time to start allocating capital back. Um, and you get other people that saying, you know, we've still got further to go. This that's always been the same in history. So you know, you don't want to wedge yourself to any one side. Um, I think you need to look for the first time in a long time. I don't think you listen to the commentators, and I think you start to look at the data you start to look at the flow coming through and the flow continues to be there's still a lot of price hikes to come through talking to some of the biggest you know ceos of tesco's unilever diageo a lot of those are saying look you haven't seen the price rises come through yet we're still to come so that for me spells that there's going to be a period of you know of longer inflation that potentially it will be slightly stickier I'm, I'm very much ready for CPI to stay at 9% for longer than people want it to. Um, and that's going to cause more volatility as people start to think, well, is the Fed going to you know, throw its interest rate hikes out for longer? Um, so I think you know, definitely over the next half of the year, six months, you're going to have more volatility. Um, my personal call would be that if I was going to start buying the bottom of the growth market, and there are some fantastic companies in the growth sector I would be doing it very tentatively. I would be really dipping my toe in as little as I could. Um, but I, like as not, I also think that, you know, this great value rotation that everyone keeps talking about, that fund managers, you know, say, you know, it's only just started and the horse hasn't even bolted out of a value stable and all this sort of stuff sounds great. But, you know, I, I think there's, as we approach recession, I think, there's a lot of fear that gets priced into equity markets. As we know, equity markets don't do that well in recessions. And, you know, especially in June, there was a lot of wholesale selling. It, it didn't matter whether it was growth or value. It got sold. And a lot of value funds were underperforming harder than growth funds were. Um, so that spells to me the risk that there's going to be more indiscriminate selling in, you know, the second half of the year, potentially volatility. But, you know, my crystal ball is telling me that this market is going to react 
aggressively to a higher inflation print. And it's going to react aggressively to a lower inflation print. It's just that it's going to be one side or the other. Um, I think that CPI will remain slightly slightly more sticky. Sorry, I'm waffling. Go on. James, thanks for that. And um, one of the things that uh, seems to have, well, that has been a debate for a while, which you, you touched on is, I suppose, um, allocators can, can prepare for higher inflation or they can prepare for a recession, but it's difficult to prepare for both at the same time. Yeah. Um, in recent, well, only in the last week or so, we've actually seen uh, the yields on, on US treasuries come down quite quite meaningfully, um, yeah. which would normally be what happens when one is is more worried about recession than inflation. Is there is there a sense that that could be where the next market shift is um, and whether that pushes people away from valuing into growth or away yeah. from something else altogether? Sure, sure. I think... I think government debt is the, you know, is the preserve of people when they're worried. It's a safe haven in times of um, in times of stress, especially when it comes to a recession. So I'm not surprised that the yields are coming down. When the US ten year hit three percent, we started to we started to have a tickle. We started to look at that as a space that we could invest into very very gently. And that started to gather pace. Um, that started to gather steam. And again, you know, that could very much be you know, the market that starts to outperform in Q3 and Q4 as if the data takes over that everything is deteriorating quite quickly, um, you know, growth is contracting quite hard, um, you're going to start to see fixed income really, really accelerating, I think. That would be my call. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see yields coming lower from here if the data continues to deteriorate. Um, But like as not, you know, on the other side, if the data surprises on the upside and gets better and better and better and better, then the Fed have even more, or Fed and you know Bank of England and the ECB have more and more reason to raise rates because the economy can take it. And that's going to be more negativity for growth stocks, more positivity for potentially value stocks that you know that 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 fare better in a higher interest rate environment. And in terms of kind of managing all those unknowns, um I suppose there are perhaps some different extremes in terms of portfolio management. So perhaps you could be more tactical and try and, you know, dip in, in and out here and there, or perhaps you could simply try and build something as diversified as possible and ride us out. Kind of how, how have you guys been uh, trying to cope with what's been going on? I mean, that question goes to the very heart of what it is to run a portfolio at the moment. Um, as a manager in my lifespan, you you get taught various tools that you can apply to different market scenarios, uh, various tactics and strategies for helping your portfolio manage your way through. I can say that in 2022, I've had to use every single one of those tools to keep a portfolio afloat. Um, it's one of the most challenging environments to invest into. Um, one day, your position can be your best friend, and the next day, it can be your worst enemy. Um, volatility is is rife now you know i've always marketed tam as a safe pair of hands in volatility and the reason the way that we structure our approach to investing in this market is a barbell approach yes i do believe that inflation is going to remain sticky yes i do believe that you know if you gave me a choice between value and growth value would be the area that i think you know stands a better chance of surviving especially in a recession uh where real incomes become that much more important rather than future incomes um, but that doesn't discount the fact that we could be wrong. That doesn't discount the fact that 
you know, growth growth in a certain market environment could become very strong again. So will fixed income. It pays to be in those asset classes as well. If I can sum it up by describing a chart, you've got kind of the rest of the world. You've got the growth market, value market, treasuries, gilt. They're all seesawing and whipsawing up and down. A barbell portfolio wants to sail straight through the middle of all of it. There'll be points when it underperforms, points when it outperforms. But that slow trajectory of performance is what we're really looking for. Um, enacting every single tool that I have at my disposal is allowing us to do that. But it means having the most diversified portfolio we possibly can. In terms of that diversification and, and I suppose the, the rationale for the barbell approach, James, um, it's it's it must be more difficult to do that when the inverse correlation between bonds and equities has arguably broken down because then you know both both ends of your your barbell are uh, are have, have similar uh, return characteristics. Absolutely, it's you know for the first time in a long time you're underweight equities and underweight fixed income. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a rare it's it's a rare scenario. Um, we remain that way. That was one of our calls because they are coalescing. They are, you know, positively correlated. You know, it makes sense to be underweight both and overweight both. When you're underweight both and they both start to rally at the same time, it, it is a painful, it, it's a painful situation to be in. But the way that you can navigate around that is to find asset classes, investments, sectors that actually are negatively correlated or can deliver you something else when I say diversification is critical for our portfolios, diversification is critical for the whole market. And I think what I find ironic is in the last 10 years, diversification's almost been an irrelevant word. Nobody's really cared. If you've been invested in the growth market, the more you've had, the better you've done. No one really minds. No one's talked about it. I've talked about diversification two, three years ago. I, you know, I think half the room fell asleep. Um, but now it's suddenly everybody wants to talk about it. It's where are you finding that negative correlation to fixed income and equities? What alternatives are you using? I've never seen so much interest in the alts market, in property, in yield, in volatility funds, in precious metals funds, in linkers, in convertibles. The list goes on. Um, And thankfully, that's one of the great things about running a portfolio is there's such a diverse range to choose from. Um, Q1 and Q2 for us have predominantly been in precious metals, which has been a huge help in Q1 and then very much turned against us in Q2. Um, you know, but the standout, the standout performer, the negatively correlated investment has been things like volatility funds, which basically rise in value when the VIX goes up. They rise in value when volatility goes up. Um, and that is, you know, that is negatively correlated to both equities and fixed income. So that's been forming a bigger part of our portfolio because it gives me a great negative correlation to both asset classes. Um, having a punchy, having a having a multi-asset sector as well within your portfolio is extremely helpful. Having funds that target volatility, funds that look to diversify themselves is also a really, really good store of value in this market because they're running their own ship. And if you agree with that, if your views uh, are aligned with those, then that's a great place to also invest. Um, definitely this year has been about building that alternatives book 
to substitute the fact that your fixed income exposure is moving in the same way as your equity exposure. So have you have you essentially been sort of running some of your, you know, what winners there are rather than kind of perpetually rebalancing and trying to keep things uh, the way they were before? Yeah, I mean, running your winners in this market is quite a rare thing. Um, so, and I go back to what I said earlier, which is, you know, one day your winners are winning and the next day they very much turned against you and this market keeps flipping from one to the other. Um, a lot of the winners over the last five to 10 years, we've taken profits on. There's nothing better than for clients in a kind of... In, in a bear market to be able to bank profits back to their bottom line. Um, you know, we've definitely been harvesting some of the growth profits that we've had over the last 10 years, rotating those into value, which is coming under pressure. But yeah, very much letting what is winning continue to win, um, if it does continue to win, um, and then remaining tactical on your current equity exposure and your fixed income exposure. Um, I think the narrative continues to change around equities and whether you're looking at inflation, whether you're looking at the Fed, whether you're looking at Ukraine, Russia, uh, you know, the European energy crisis, every single one of those has really quite sharp ramifications for the ge uh, the the, uh, the geographic market that it sits within. Um, so there's a lot of flux in the equity positions. Um, but yeah, sorry, go on. Um, within um, within equities, you've you've mentioned the different factors that that one can um, consider. But in the current climate, how important how important or how much relevance do you place on a geographical location of companies, or or is it more a case of you want them to be as globally diversified sure. as businesses as possible? So it goes back to barbelling. It goes back to diversification. We don't place any greater emphasis on focusing on different geographies of investments than we did before. It's always been important for us. It's always been important to manage that geographical exposure within the portfolio, whether it's Europe, US, UK, emerging markets, frontier, whatever you're looking at. Um, it's even more heightened now because you have such different drivers in different areas that they're all kind of their own microcosms. So it, it is really important now to make sure that you have a handle on a where your geographic exposure is direct, what you have in Europe. Is it the right thing? Do you have the right amount of growth? Do you have the right amount of value? If you want a, an unconstrained fund, where is that exposure? Understanding that, but also looking at your global managers, you know, it might be quite easy in this market to just allocate to a global fund and say, well, look, you, you take care of it. It's too difficult for me to run. But, you need to know exactly where they are because you need to know on any one day in total, in aggregate, where are you exposed? Where are you long? Where are you short? Because if this market turns around, you need to understand how that impacts your portfolios. And when you invest into funds rather than direct securities, uh, getting a true, getting a true look through can be slightly harder. It's not quite as, uh, it, it requires slightly more um, of a granular view. Um, but yeah, it's very important, the geography. It's interesting you mentioned kind of global funds and I suppose historically the likes of, you know, wealth managers haven't tended to like them just because you're, I suppose, outsourcing too much of um, of what sure. you would like to specialise in. I imagine perhaps that's become even more the case given what you're, you're saying now, you know, things are, 
things are much more granular and there's a lot more kind of idiosyncrasy at least for the time being so mm-hmm. so perhaps now we're seeing even more kind of niche approaches mm-hmm. within different portfolios yeah absolutely i think global funds still have their place um for me they make up great investments to have on the flanks you run your geographic investments in europe in the uk in the us and you manage your cap exposure through those funds but i think you should never discount a talented global manager's ability to add value where other funds haven't they have the ability especially unconstrained managers to go wherever they like and pick out value and i always I always believe that global managers, if you find the right ones, will be able to add alpha where your geographic investments may not, because they can simply go to places that you've not evaluated or that you may not have exposure to and find those companies that, you know, add that extra element to your portfolio. I think they make a great filling within the portfolios. We have we actually have three at the moment global funds running um, and that forms a core part of the barbell that we have, which is, you know, one is a global growth manager picking out high quality. One is a global value manager. I believe one of the best in the market and one is a kind of recession proofed middle of the ground looking for high quality companies paying a dividend, um, you know, with sustainable margins in any cycle. Now I can run, all three of those through my geographies as well, but I'm going to have to pick different styles for each one of those geographies. Do I want that approach in Europe or do I want it in the US? Do I want it in the UK? Um, Having a global fund allows you to kind of fill in the gaps as it were. Uh, I find it quite a versatile tool. Um, On those um, global funds, um, again, our, our, um, you mentioned uh, dividends. How important is is natural income in in what you do? In terms of obviously, a client has income as a priority. Can take income from capital gains. Well, if there are any capital gains. But in the current climate, uh, is natural income how you a priority for for clients generally and for how you run money? Natural income is important to a large subset of clients that are approaching the kind of the twilight years of their investment horizon or their investment journey. Um, natural income is very important for certain clients. And in this market, that challenge is made that much harder trying to sustain that income without eroding your capital base, i.e., you know, generating a yield. Um, it's very difficult to do. Um, I think, You've got a stage in the market now where looking at companies that pay a dividend is becoming extremely interesting. So aside from the struggle that we have in sustaining client incomes for their lifestyle, we're also looking at a part of the market, especially in the UK, that is really favoring dividend payers. That's really starting to look at dividend payers in this market as an attractive place to be. Why? Because if you entering a recession and you can find a company that's got you know low levels of debt good amount of cash on the balance sheet reoccurring revenue strong margins that's throwing off cash as well so you can generate an income from that great investment that's a good place to park your money whilst there's this uncertainty around this 
when I first started in the industry, there was always this phrase, I want to invest in what's going to be around when the dust settles. I want to own those stocks that are still going to be around after everyone's gone through the mill. And, you know, I think in this market with inflation, with a cost of living crisis, um, we are in a bear market and we seem to be barreling towards a recession, owning companies that are high quality, throwing off cash now, not cash in a decade, I think is a pretty good place to be. So I imagine more attention is going to come towards that dividend paying element of the entire global market. You can already see that in thematic ETFs and income funds that are focused on the global market. They're starting to outperform. Um, and that's also great for clients that need a yield. That's also great for clients that are looking for that regular income and coming from the market, not coming from their capital base. So we're not eroding their portfolio. So it's it's actually quite nice to see for both elements. Yeah, it's interesting. It does seem like kind of dividend strategies have been one of the corners of the funds universe and the market in general that have sort of held up better. But I suppose what, what interests me is there is it does seem to be a split of approaches. You have kind of your more, sounds derogatory, but perhaps, you, perhaps your more kind of yield chasing strategies that are maybe end up in those kind of um, areas that have really been shooting lights out like commodities and so on. But then you also have kind of, I suppose, what you're talking about, which is some of the more what you might view as a kind of more uh, defensive approach. And some of these companies that have been around for a very long time and have very strong kind of um, balance sheets and, and so on. So it'll be kind of interesting to see if there is now, a, if you do at some point see a bit of a divergence again between those kind of racier yield approaches and the kind of more slow and steady approaches. Yeah, definitely. I think. This market is is favouring dividend payers because it's kind of a value play, and people are still very much that you know. Within this is the value environment. Value managers for my entire career have been telling me that when this environment occurs, value is going to roof it. Um, so you know, this is the time for dividend payers. But I also think the market is bolting on a requirement, which is a recession-proof dividend, something that is recession-proof. Stuff like, you know, thematic ETFs like SPDR have a global dividend aristocrats ETF, which is a great way of isolating high quality companies that have sustained and grown their dividend over the last seven years. That's a great way of kind of sailing through the middle of what you just said, David, which is the kind of, you know, leaving the hot income and focusing on the real high quality, long term sustainable stuff. Um and focusing on that. So there are products out there that enable you to really isolate exactly what part you want. And that's, again, what's so great about this market is when you are diversifying, when you are building a portfolio, your ability to dial down into the minutiae of exactly how you want your flavor, how you want your portfolio to feel has gotten that much better. Um, you know, and I hope it continues. Well, really interesting stuff, I think, and, and lots of uh, food for thought there. Um, but I'm afraid that is all we have time for. So thank you very much to both James and David for joining me on uh, on our latest podcast. And thank you very much for listening. Take care.